Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for those who have asked me what my plans are for New Year's Eve, well, this is it. (laughs) I'm here with you in the salon. But please don't think that this is any kind of a sacrifice on my part because, well, I really dislike New Year's Eve parties. And for a long time, this made me feel like an outcast, but at least until a few days ago it did when John Oliver posted a YouTube video in which, among other things, he said, New Year's Eve is like the death of a pet. You know it's going to happen, but somehow you're never really prepared for how truly awful it is. (laughs) So thank you, John Oliver, for letting me know that I'm not the only one who stays home on New Year's Eve. Actually, it's quite nice being here at home and in the salon with you right now. So, uh, hey, Happy New Year, by the way. And just a word to our new listeners, particularly if you're becoming as enamored with the flowing words of the Bard McKenna as I and many of my friends were at first, my advice is to be sure that you listen to him with a critical ear. For me, uh, Terence's raps are starting points to get me thinking, but I no longer treat everything that he says as gospel. So whenever he uses the word clearly, I'd really be careful that you don't automatically assume that what he sees so clearly is how it still is. And in fairness to Terence, it's also wise to keep in mind that the talk that we're about to listen to was given in May of 1993. Uh, So it took place over 21 years ago, and it's likely that by now he may have changed his mind about some of the things that were so clear to him at the time. Now, at the very end of this talk, we get to hear what I think is the best description of a DMT trip that we've yet heard from Terence. And I may have missed this in the past, but it's the first time that I remember hearing him say that, in a way, the elves are like dogs who run up and lick your face. (laughs) I probably should have issued a spoiler alert first, but I want to be sure that you don't tune out during this rap, thinking that you've heard it before. You probably have, at at least in bits and pieces, except for the face-licking part. (laughs) That was a new one for me. So now let's begin with another question for the bard Terrence McKenna. You might want to talk about um, the copyright of genetic, copywriting of genetic coding. I don't know if you've heard that Monsanto and DuPont, uh, they're getting into agribusiness. They go off to the uh, mountains of the Andes and solicit the indigenous cultures to provide them with their potato stock. Then they go back and dissect the genetic code and copyright it. So they happen to catch a farmer in Idaho growing the same potato. They can sue him because they hold the copyright on that code. Well, it, yeah, I mean, this is a very complicated issue. It isn't, nece- it isn't necessarily of interest to this group. It, it's of interest to me because I deal with the question of endangered species and stuff like that. This question of what shall we give the rainforest people for the drugs and medicines that we take out is a real tricky question because say I go to the Amazon and and I bring back a plant and, and I am able to vegetatively propagate this plant into a crop of some sort. Well, now all I took from the Amazon 
was one plant, which God knows there's plenty of there, but also the knowledge of the people, because inevitably you learn this stuff from informants. There's very little original botanizing of any consequence in the Amazon. But it, the... And, and there's been a lot of debate among pharmaceutical companies and conservation organizations as to what should we give back to these cultures. And, of course, pharmaceutical companies think in terms... They will, even the ones that are well-motivated and generous think in terms of money and medicine. Well, money they don't need. Money will destroy the culture... And medicine seems a disingenuous thing to give them since the premise was, in the first place, that their medicine was better than your medicine. Uh, I don't know what should be done about this. I do know in practical terms I have seen whole scenes go to hell over, a, over something as simple as an outboard motor. I mean, an outboard motor brings whores and alcohol days closer to an upriver village. And so what favor are you doing, these people, by dropping a 110-horsepower Evinrude onto the, the jefe of the village? Uh, really, I don't know if there's any... The biggest favor we could do them is to never show up in the first place. Uh, but that would defeat our goal our goal, meaning the pharmaceutical goal of extracting drugs from the rainforest, which is not an unnoble goal. I mean, after all, if you're trying to cure AIDS or TB or, or shrink tumors, uh, that's not exactly a mission of rape and destruction, but it can turn into rape and destruction depending on how it's prosecuted. Does that... You know, I mean, if you're going to start preparing drugs by extracting uh, supposed active uh, ingredients, then you're losing the synergism, you're lo losing the life of the, uh, the history that's there, too. Yeah, and you're losing a connection to the morphogenetic field, if you believe morphogenetic fields uh, exist. Uh, you're losing the induction ritual that may be connected with the drugs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, but, but even on your own terms, you see, you're, on your own terms, you're taking away what you need. Because if you have a materialist view of medicine, then really all you need is the, uh, the, um, the substance. Well, this is this Sheldrakean idea that things long in existence have a kind of momentum to perpetuate themselves, that things that are very recently... Uh, created lack. It's not a scientifically um, creditable notion, but Rupert's been working for many years to show that an idea like this is necessary to, to solve some of the problems of modern biology. Do you all understand the concept? It's slippery, but fairly simple. It's that it can be simply stated by saying, once something happens it's easier for it to happen again uh, anywhere in the universe. And, and it leads to somewhat magical expectations in the realm of experimentation. In other words, if you, if you design a maze of some sort that has never existed before 
and you teach rats in Canada to run this maze, and they get very good at it, then when you go to Australia to teach rats to run the same maze, they should learn faster. And believe it or not, there is some evidence for this effect. Uh, a very interesting experiment was done a couple of years ago where a computer was programmed with Hebrew, programmed to generate three-letter sequences of Hebrew words. Now, some of these... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, three-letter sequences of Hebrew letters. And some of these sequences were Hebrew words, including words which occur in the Torah and consequently are, are read by, have been read by devout Jews since Abraham. And some were simply random combination of Hebrew letters that meant nothing. And then what they did is they went, uh, they, I think, used a Korean population people who had absolutely no empathy or familiarity with Hebrew, and they would flash these three-letter uh, sequences on a television screen, and you would be asked, A, to guess whether it was a word or nonsense, and then B, you were asked to guess, if you thought it was a word, what the word me meant, and then C, you were asked to rate the confidence of your guess between 1 and 10. And, and what they discovered was none of these Korean people could guess the meaning of the Hebrew words. But when confronted with a real word in Hebrew, they had high confidence that that was what it was. And so you see, this seems to imply that the Hebrew words that had been said by millions and millions of Jews over time had a field, a morphogenetic field around them that the purely arbitrary stuff didn't. And then other, other experiments have been done, you know, with nursery rhymes versus rhymes that were just made up by a poet a week ago. Uh, I actually thought of a experiment which I thought would settle it once and for all because I noticed uh, my publicist, I mean I resist technology, believe it or not, but my publicist finally forced me to get call waiting. Well, so then I noticed that the telephone will be silent for hours. Then it rings. You pick it up, you start talking to somebody mm -hmm. and immediately the call waiting thing starts <laughs> beeping and it, it's clear that a, a telephone call in progress attracts other <laughs> telephone calls. And my, my, well, my notion was you could create a computer system to monitor an office building where hundreds of people were getting calls and making calls and see if, in fact, ordinary statistical expectations are violated because I, I think it's uncanny. I mean, I go away to Esalen on a weekend like this and I will go home and there'll be 30 messages on the phone machine and then when I listen to them, some of them will be no longer than 15 or 20 seconds and I can hear the call waiting on the message machine as the person is leaving the message. So I can't be receiving 3,500 calls a day. So it must be that the act of a, a telephone call in progress is a magnet for another telephone call.
that's morphogenetic resonance. Or it, yeah, right. <laughs> Are you going to? Um, did you intend to, to discuss your current thinking about the um, current today about the uh, eschaton philosophy? And, and if you were, what, what I'm really interested in is whether we, we're talking about everything from Amazon people to um, you know this morning our, ourselves and how people relate to experience. What's the point of it all? If you're still convinced that this is a 20-year cycle before the entire universe that we know uh, heads into uh, the whole. Well, I think that uh, if your hypothesis is that a universe of 20 billion years plus age is about to go bazingo in 20 years, you should probably prepare a fallback position uh, just in case it goes uh, awry. Uh, I, I've sort of talked around this because I didn't know at what point we wanted to really engage it. Because uh, I talked about uh, the condensation of the imagination as a physical object and the philosopher's stone as an attractor for the historical process. Uh, I really, and I talked about this alien force, the tractor beam that reaches into our species and begins sculpting us in its image. And that's where we are now. All of this leads toward the conclusion, I think, that biology is being drawn out of matter and that the, this is not some kind of process that goes on hundreds of thousands or millions of years in the future, that history is actually ending within our lifetime. And I've, you know, I mean, it sounds silly in a way to say it, but based on what will come this evening, maybe not so silly. You can actually calculate the rate of closure. You can actually figure out the kind of acceleration in which we're involved in. And it leads to the conclusion that history has only a very little bit more to run. That's, in a sense, realists know this, but deny the implication. I mean, we're running out of everything. That's always a sure sign that the party is over, you know? <laughs> when the liquor's gone, when the hors d'oeuvres are munched, when the buffet table is wreckage, the party is over. It's time to go home, folks. Go get your hats and coats, call your cabs, and uh, do your host a favor. And uh, that's where we are. Uh, it's impossible... It's impossible to imagine history continuing for centuries, and given the rate of acceleration, it doesn't appear that that's going to happen. The only question is, is it extinction? Is, it, is that what it is? Or is it transformation? And I choose to believe it's transformation because the evidence of the psychedelics seems to support that. Um, I can't, I mean, I guess I can't stress enough my sense that history is anomalous, that there's no way to get used to it, and that it represents a phase transition. It's an extraordinary emergency circumstance. It only lasts tops 25,000 years, 
And really the intense part is the last five or six thousand years. I mean, if you go back six thousand years, we're talking 4,000 BC. The pyramids weren't built yet. Uh, nothing familiar was in place in 4,000 BC. You know, there's a, a tendency in occult thinking to fiddle with the dating because occultists have inherited without uh, sophisticated examination the Renaissance's belief that the older it is, the better it is. And, uh, you know, enthusiasts of Atlantis want to place it 50,000 years in the past and Lemuria 100,000 years. This is all nonsense. Uh, the, the miracle of our predicament is not how long everything has been in place, but how brief it all has been. The whole thing has come into being since yesterday. I mean, the people who built the pyramids are, what, 1,500 generations in the past. Less, less. Probably more like 600 generations in the past. So the emergence of technology codes, high culture, is all very, very sudden. And uh, this seems to be, I, I think it's a phenomenon which could be elevated to the level of a general rule about reality, that each stage of cosmic development happens much quicker than the stage which preceded it. So after the initial Big Bang, you know, there was a long, long period of basically just churning physical chemistry uh, not even physical chemistry, but an atomic plasma. There were no elements. There were only electrons. Uh, later, hydrogen and helium formed and could aggregate into stars. Then a new property <coughs> emerged. In the center of these large masses of helium, fusion began to take place because the pressure and temperature went so high, well, fusion cooked out heavier elements like iron and carbon, and they become the basis then for a whole new kind of reality, molecular existence, and then organomolecular existence based on long-chain polymers based on carbon. Once life emerged, the tempo really begins to pick up Change is now coming on a scale of once every few million years. Once you get higher animals, change is even more accelerated. Once you have languages and culture, change takes an exponential leap forward. And the main characteristic of our culture is phenomenally accelerated change. So much change that when you take this curve of acceleration and plot its future vector, you discover that within 50 years, we will release more energy than there is in the solar system, travel faster than light, so forth and so on. Well, if you assume these things are impossible, then it means we're hitting the limit. We're approaching the limit. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about singularities in relation to your theory? Yeah. Uh, the... 
the attractor at the end of time is a perfect example of a singularity. And, in fact, good question. Uh, it seems that, first of all, what is a singularity? A singularity is a, is a place where the rules are broken. Uh, a miracle is a singularity. Uh, and it, strangely enough, it turns out to be very hard to model the universe without resorting to a singularity or, or several. A few years ago, uh, Stephen Hawking, who has incredible press, I must say, uh, <laughs> Stephen Hawking uh, hypothesized that the existence of what he called mini black holes. He thought that black holes left over from the early birth of the universe had evaporated so much matter off their surfaces that they might be now down to the size of a few centimeters in diameter. Well, when they asked him to calculate how many of these mini black holes there are in the universe, they came up with a number like uh, uh, 14 high 11. Well, if every one of those black holes has a singularity in the center of it, that's a hell of a lot of singularities. What kind of a theory is it that allows for 14 high 11 exceptions to its rule? That there are exceptions to the rule. Well, that's a fishy way, you know, that's a way of wiggling out of it. Straight science tries to do it with just one singularity. Essentially, the position of ordinary science is give us one free miracle and then we can explain everything. And that one free miracle is uh, the idea that the universe sprang from an area considerably smaller than a gnat's eyebrow uh, for no reason in a single moment. And if you believe that, then all the rest flows quite naturally. Notice, however, that whatever you think about this idea, it's the limit case for credulity. Do you understand what I mean? I mean you cannot think of a more unlikely proposition. It's almost like the, the unlikeliest of all propositions. I defy anyone to dream up a position less intuitively compelling than that one. And yet that's where they start from, you see. So what I say is, okay, if science gets one free singularity, then, it, then in the game of hypothesis building, it must be that each player is dealt one singularity chip at the beginning. And I choose to play mine at the end and say... It's highly unlikely to my mind that a singularity would spring from an absolute nothingness. I mean, that seems to me the least fruitful environment to seek uh, a singularity of this type. Far more likely, if singularities exist at all, that they would exist in a domain of complex energies Molecular bonds, chemical bonds, electromagnetic radiation, hard radiation, languages, biological systems, membranes, gels, liquid crystals, and so forth. In other words, the kind of stew of phenomena that our present cosmos represents, who can say 
what could arise out of this. I mean, if you can get people, you could get anything, uh, it seems to me. So rather than view the universe as the shock wave of an initial explosion spreading out through the dimensions, why not place the singularity as a chaotic attractor at the end of the life of the universe and see all processes as drawn toward it rather than pushed away from it, drawn toward it, complexified, interleaved, folded, mixed, and connected in many, many exotic ways. And that's what this eschaton object is. I mean, it's something which we anticipate through technology. It's something we are building out of ourselves, you know, the, the grand work of history is the condensation and concrescence of the visible soul. But in the same way that alchemists are like catalysts to natural processes, that was the idea, see, that gold and precious metals grew in the earth and that alchemists were not doing anything unnatural. They were simply really speeding up time. Well, in that same way, what we're doing is uh, catalyzing the emergence of a process that nature would otherwise ultimately deliver at some yet more distant time. We're like an enzyme in the universal mix of being. And what the eschaton is, is pointless to speculate upon because it is literally below the event horizon of rational apprehendability. That means we're too stupid to know what it is. But when we look east, the sky is touched with the rosy blush of dawn, but the surface of the solar disk of the singularity has not yet come above the horizon. However... In the next 20 years, I think this will happen. I mean, I will abandon this theory long before we reach 2012 if it doesn't begin to gain power as a meme in society. Because one of the things the mushroom told me that I found to be true, it's an interesting, it said to me, nothing is unannounced. You know, there is no such thing as a surprise Everything is preceded by the ghost of its appearance. And if you're sensitive to that, you know, you can't be taken by surprise. That's part of the nature of a fractal cosmos, is that nothing is utterly unannounced. How could it be, since everything is uh, distributed through the matrix? You're saying this is a different notion than history? I mean, you're describing history from this Yeah, that history is a series of approximations of the final singularity. And that's what all these religions are. They're people's best guess, given their cultural circumstance and historical angle of regarding, their best guess as to what the singularity is. Yeah. Um, My calendar Well, the only thing I share in common with the Maya is that we both did mushrooms. 
So it's sort of like, is it that there's a barcode in there that no matter where and when in all of space and time you take the mushroom, you come to the conclusion that something very important is going to happen on December 22nd, 2012. The Mayan calendar is a real puzzle, uh, not the well-known details of it, although to speak of any detail of the Mayan calendar as well-known is maybe... uh, specious but see the the strange thing about the Mayan calendar it's about a 4385 year or 5485 year cycle with many sub cycles in it it begins on a slow tuesday in august and it ends on a winter solstice uh, a, a very important winter solstice Uh, a winter solstice when the heliacal rising of the sun is eclipsing the galactic center. That seems to imply that the Mayans, that the Maya did not establish the beginning of their calendar and count forward. They established the end date and counted backward to establish the beginning. And uh, there's argument among astronomers as to whether this is even possible for people at that level of culture to do. You know, there are a number of these astronomical mysteries around, like the Dogon tribe in in Africa, who, before the era of telescopes, cheerfully informed astronomers that the star Sirius, which is ten light years away, had a companion too faint to be seen by the naked eye and that it had a 50-year orbit around Sirius Prime. This is true. How did they know that? Uh, And they go further. They also claim a third companion, Sirius C, which has to this day not yet been detected. If it is detected by long base interferometry or some other, that speckling technique, well, if they if Sirius C comes into focus, a lot of people will have to come to terms with the question of how did the Dogon get this. <laughs> However, there are there are odd examples of unbelievably what appear to be unbelievably unlikely coincidences or good guesses. For example, uh, um, Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels. And he describes in there uh, the presence of two moons around Mars and their relative size and orbital periods 70 years before William Herschel observed these objects through the telescope. And nobody knows, you know, was it just an incredibly lucky guess? Or, or what was going on there? Yeah. Uh, likewise, on the change, you think that was put together by some incredibly smart Chinese or was it revealed somehow to them? No, I think it, I, I, I tend to be nervous about the extraterrestrial hypothesis because I think, I believe in extraterrestrials, but I believe that real extraterrestrials are so peculiar that, that the job is to recognize them, you know. No, I think that, uh, <clears throat> Not the Chinese, because the evidence seems to point to the fact that the I Ching was actually composed in central 
southern China somewhere by a pre-Joe people. But I think that these people had a technique, perhaps analogous to a yogic technique, perhaps analogous to the stilling of the heart techniques, which are yogas that suppress physiological functioning, and that they were they were able to look into organism and they're looking into their own bodies with a completely different epistemic toolkit than we have. They saw flux and they watched perhaps for a thousand years, you know, and tried to model this flux. And they finally realized that that there were myriads of elements in this flux, but not an infinite number of elements. And that all of the structure of the flux could in fact be reduced to 64 elements, which they then created a symbolical notation system for, which we call hexagrams. In other words, in the same way that we, with our obsession with matter, have discovered and satisfied ourselves that it only requires, what is it now, 108 elements to create all material phenomena and all molecular configurations. They discovered that there are 64 elements necessary to produce all varieties of temporal situation. There is a, it is no coincidence that the numbers which run the I Ching 64, 6, 4, cube of 8, so forth and so on, that all of those numbers are the same numbers that are necessary to describe the functioning of DNA. Uh, I mean, the, the you can perfectly model the DNA using the I Ching. Not only the 64 codons that code for protein, but templating, replication, so forth and so on. All the functions of DNA can be modeled very cleanly using the I Ching. So really what it is, is it's a calculus of biological uh, necessity. And we, as creatures made of DNA, then find that this calculus of biological necessity functions for us like magic, because uh, it describes the matrix in which we are in fact embedded and, and, and with which we must come to terms. That's why throwing the I Ching, you know, even though I think that's a, com- a completely corrupted use of it, still it is like dropping a dipstick into the flow of a river and then pulling it out and taking a depth measurement. Uh, it's something like that. Yeah. Some of the things we're seeing manifest now are perhaps reverberations of this event which is approaching. And I was wondering if, if crop circles might fit into that somehow. Well, I think that, well, when pressed, I guess, I think that all phenomena are reverberations and, and in a sense, pre-echoes. Is that a preco? I'm not sure. Of the the eschaton. The eschaton, I mean, you've, many of you have heard me make this metaphor. It's like one of those mirrored bar balls in a disco. It is. It reflects its, in, its surround. 
the essence of the eschaton is impossible to discern because its surface is mirrored. So when you look at the eschaton, what you see, strangely enough, is your own face. And uh, religions and hysterias of various sorts are particularly strong incidences of reflection of the eschaton. This thing which happened in Waco, Texas, was just fascinating because it, it was a real cognitive dissonance. It, it made no sense to most people. And yet, obviously, to the people inside the metaphor, it made perfect sense. I think we will see more and more of this kind of thing and that, in fact, we need to guard against it. Uh, prophets of all sorts will arise in the last days. Christianity taught this in an attempt to cover its own ass, not realizing that it is one of these cults which arise in the last days. The whole thing about the Christos, stripped of all the mumbo-jumbo, what this is about is uh, the mystery of the resurrection. The idea that Christ was somehow involved in some kind of crypto-biological transformation that was necessary in order to unlock the doors of paradise which had been slammed shut with the fall of Adam. And I, I find Christianity fascinating. I, I don't believe a word of it because I don't think Christian theologians understand what they're looking at. But what they're looking at is um, the closest thing to the eschaton that we ever had. But the conclusions are all wrong. Uh, there's an amazing passage in, uh, I think it's Luke. It's the morning after the, um, the uh, entombment of Christ and the three Marys Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Christ, go to uh, the tomb, and uh, Christ is there, standing beside the rolled-away stone. And, and uh, one of these women starts toward him, and he says, go read it, it's right there, he says, touch me not, woman, for I am not yet fully of the nature of the Father. Well, you just wonder what in the world is going on here. He is alive. He is resurrected. He, is, he has overcome death. But he says, touch me not. I am not yet fully of the nature of the Father. And what it implies is a process of some sort. Something is happening. He is hypercarbolating, uh, is what is happening. And the hypercarbolation is not yet complete. Uh, it was a near miss. And if you read the whole thing from that light, it's clear that the people involved could not understand what was happening. So the picture, what you, what you get here, is a picture of somebody not fully in command of their own uh, mojo, you know, and uh, and not themselves completely understanding what is going on. And I think that every religious teacher 
is a sense of victim of eschatonic precursive reflectivity. Uh, and a David Korish, it's, it's a, it's a mess. It's a very distorted and twisted kind of reflection. Uh, a Christ, a Buddha, a Mohammed, uh, a slightly cleaner, uh, shot at what it is, but nevertheless horribly distorted and misunderstood by historical contextuality. Yeah. I, I was wondering if the study of, of some of the phenomena happening in the, in the uh, crop fields in England might shed some light on the form and shape of the eschaton. Well, I think that there, that there will be more and more of these anomalies. The flying saucer is an interesting anomaly. The flying saucer is clearly the ghost of the eschaton. It's, uh, I mean, our unconscious mind, the skies of this planet are haunted by the image of a spinning silvery disc that has eternity and the aliens and the mysteries of existence locked inside of it. Uh, the appearance of the flying saucers in 47, uh, I mean, the modern era of flying saucers, to my mind indicates... Uh, closure with this eschatonic moment but as we as we get closer to this coincidentia positorum things will get wackier and rational analysis will fail i think that the crop circles are a good example of this <coughs> if it is not a hoax and this is a huge if because there are things about the crop circles that just stink to high heaven. I mean, it is so mm, marginally convincing. I mean, for instance, isn't it a little odd that these things begin to appear uh, within uh, an hour and a half drive of most of the people on the planet who will embrace the phenomenon? I'm thinking of John Michel and his cronies. I mean, what if it were happening in the wheat fields of Siberia? How inconvenient, you know. Another thing about the crop circles that's puzzling is everyone says it's a communication. It's a curious form of communication because it communicates absolutely nothing. What it communicates is complete confusion. Nobody has a clue. If you really wanted to communicate, and for some reason your chosen method of communication was mashed wheat fields in England, you could still write in the Queen's English. Uh, another thing very puzzling about the crop circles, not about the crop circles per se, but where is the British establishment in all this? I mean, my God, southern England is dotted with air bases, RAF bases, nuclear weapons, depots, uh, cruise missile bases, are we being asked to believe that the Ministry of Defense is completely sanguine about nightly violations of British airspace year after year and they're just perfectly comfortable with the idea that, uh, you know, half a mile away from their nuclear weapons depot, uh, corn is being snapped over on its side. I mean, if you can snap a corn stalk, you can reset a switch on an arming device or a missile. Pardon me? bent and molded. So it's puzzling that the British government is so nonplussed by all this. 
I think that means they must either know what it is, or more likely they're doing it. Actually, they have a military operation to observe uh, a, a, a field. The military itself did actually observe a field for, I think, 10 days. Well, you know, I mean, you want to be very, very subtle in looking at a phenomenon like this. It is conceivable that inside MI5, people have observed the rise of the neo-paganism in England that is characterized by the Glastonbury crowd and the rave culture and all that, and has created a hoax to lure those people out on a limb. In a sense, it's already happened because for years the crop circle enthusiasts ran around saying no human being could make one of these things. Well then Sheldrake and company and the people at the Seriologist, you know, sponsored that contest last year where under very rigidly controlled conditions uh, people were given 10-acre plots of corn and... Uh, told, you know, you have from midnight to 4 a.m., you can't use any light, we will be monitoring for sound, and here is a high-resolution photograph of a recent crop circle. Your mission is to make this crop circle in a convincing manner. The people who won the prize produced a splendid crop circle. Well, so that put the no human beings can do it people highly on uh, the defensive. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it amused me. I mean, here's an example of how occult thinking works. Remember, what were their names? Was it Ned and Dave, the two drunken painters? Doug and Dave. Okay, so, so here come Doug and Dave, these two mildly alcoholic itinerant house painters who claim to have done all the crop circles. People who the week before were talking about telluric messaging from the guy in world soul just dumped all over Doug and Dave and said, well, you believe that two out-of-work painters could do this? Say, well, what's your position? That a telluric force did it? Now I ask you, you know, just in the interests of fairness, which is more likely? Doug and Dave may be a stretch of the imagination. Telluric forces intent on saving the world is highly improbable. So Rupert and I, we, we, we went to work on this because I felt, see, there's something it plays with people in the way that flying saucers never did. For instance, I don't know if you know this, but um, last summer, I believe it was last summer's most spectacular crop circle, was the logo of the crop circle society, <laughs> the seriologist. And then, well, and then the other big startling crop circle of last summer was a Mantlebrot set. Well... This is just a little too cute. To, uh, yes, isn't that startling? It was right outside of, of Cambridge. So, for instance, when I criticize the crop circles and say, isn't it strange that they all are in southern England where John Michel and company would be most likely to stumble into them? Ah, that's what people say. They say, you're wrong. They're not all in southern England. What about the one in Arkansas? What about the ones in Ontario and so forth? Japan. I say, baloney. 
I say there aren't. There aren't. And had, did you see the one in Arkansas or Ontario? Well, of course we all saw pictures of it. But it's sort of like determining whether or not Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world. I mean, how the hell would you actually verify that and how much faith would you have in the results? I mean, here we have a mountain in Tibet and a mountain in Bolivia and you're telling me you know beyond a shadow of a doubt which is has its surface, its utmost surface, furthest from the center of the earth. Uh, the, the crop circles, if they are outside of England, they aren't spreading. They're intermittent, enough that we could easily dismiss all cases outside of England as the hoax of enthusiasts. And again, it communicates nothing. It is anti-communication. It is noise in the circuits well, I, yeah, I had this notion at first, see, I thought when I was more inclined to treating it as real, I thought maybe somebody is trying to contact us and after 40 years of flying saucers, they finally figured out we just don't get it with flying saucers. And they said, uh, well, so we'll leave a physical trace. But the really, the, to me, the giveaway, the key to the crop circle phenomenon is that nobody has ever seen one form. And by God, if you want to rivet the attention of the population of this planet, just make a crop circle in front of us, in front of television cameras. In other words, if we could see the corn lay down, then all skeptics would would be just undercut completely. And if they went behind the television camera about four or five years ago, 2020 magazine said, okay, we're going to do something about it. And they went, and they, you know, when they put the show on, and they said, we went, and, we, and they show all the crop circles and all the different theories. And they said, so we set up an infrared camera in a field one night, and we waited for a crop circle to happen. And then they show the infrared images of people in the shadows and stuff. And they said, and sure enough, by morning, there was no crop circle, and we were all getting ready to go. And somebody said, uh-oh, look. And in the field behind them, one that they weren't filming, the crop circle had appeared. And that was the end of the... That was I say arrest and torture the entire crew and you'll, <laughs> you'll get your answer. Uh, uh, because you see, it, it's perfectly clear that somehow if you were to see the crop circle made, the mystery would flee. And so we are never, well, we only get before and after. How come no during? When that's what in fact would convince us of its reality. It's playing with us, or somebody is playing with us. Um, can you connect um, information theory to what we're talking about? Well, that's what I was trying to do when I said uh, that it's a, a language virus of some sort. I mean, here's the thing think about this. Suppose, my other example, uh, suppose you're a scientist and you're measuring the amount of electricity running in a line. And just for purposes of argument, let's say you put a million voltmeters on this line. So you're going to get a million measurements of the amount of voltage running through the line. 
999,999 of these meters tell you that the voltage flowing through the line is between 3 and 5 volts. One voltmeter on this line tells you that 8,000 volts are flowing through the line. Now, what do you do if you're a scientist? You throw out that value. You say, well, that can't possibly be true. All the other meters metered within a certain narrow range, this one meter is broken. Get rid of it. Now, think of each of us as meters, metering reality. Millions of us, all reporting, no big deal, no big deal. Then comes one person. They say that there's a thousand-ton beryllium ship populated by little gray men who want to give you a proctological examination in the middle of the night. Now, what do we do? We don't throw them out. We put them on national TV and make a movie about it and hold conferences and try and figure out how could this be. Uh, I'm, I... I... Yeah, but the same thing could be said about the very foundation of everything that you talk about. No, because psychedelic experiences are repeatable on demand. That's the great difference. These phenomena which just come and go and leave you jaw hanging in the wind, since you can't control the confrontation, you don't know what you've got. I, with psychedelics, you know, you can see elves twice a day on schedule. And the, the people don't, the people who find this assertion disconcerting don't want to hear about it. But it's in fact true. The drugs at last give us a handle on the other where we can deal with it rather than wait for it to occur. With large, unbiased populations. You mean that they get elves? You mean people who've been contaminated by Terence McKenna rats? I've read your books and I've seen elves. Well, do you think you saw elves because you read my book? I don't know. Well, what do you think? I think I don't know. Uh-huh. Well, I didn't read my books when I saw elves. Uh, I just, it was on the natch. Uh, I, I think that uh, I spread the, the elf meme. I make it legitimate to report elves, but that I think people were seeing elves before. Uh, it's a difficult thing because it's a mental phenomenon, you know. I mean, we can't lug a camera in there. Although, with virtual reality and sufficient money, we could set out to create a virtual version of one person's trip, and once they said, yes, that's it, 100%, you got it, then we would bring somebody else in and put the helmet on them, and say, is this what your trip was like? And please critique and modify the contents of this virtual reality. I think this is that virtual reality is going to be a very powerful tool for exploring pharmacological states, because at last we are going to be able to compare the contents of our own minds uh, through something a little more fine-tuned than verbal language. Basically... My method has been a what-can-you-show-me method. And I know that there are these, you know, this 
particular style of refined English womanhood that seems at home with the fairies of the garden, uh, the Dutch. The things I encounter that I call elves or gnomes, it's just a gloss. I mean, they're small and they have the archetype. They, they're more like leprechauns. And this maybe raises a racial issue. Uh, and they they make things and they live in domed spaces and you know the mythology of elves is that they live under hills and they're master craftsmen makers of jewelry and machines and stuff like that that is exactly the deal and they're and they're dead souls is what they are Interestingly, the whole notion of fairyland is uh, when St. Patrick arrived in Ireland to convert the pagan Irish to Christianity, they were practicing what is called the fairy faith. They believed in, in little people. They believed they were the souls of the departed. They believed they were everywhere around us, and they believed that certain people who had the eye could see these fairies. And they believed this with such conviction that Patrick quickly realized that he was not going to get anywhere converting the Irish unless he made a place for this phenomenon. So he invented purgatory. Purgatory was invented by St. Patrick. It was not church doctrine before that time. And he then... Very success, and, and if you are not Catholic or don't truck in this domain, you may not know what purgatory is, is a, a place exactly like hell, except you eventually get out. And, and uh, it's where you do penance for your sins. Well, he was so successful converting the pagan Irish with this concept that when word reached the Holy See, the Vatican, uh, it was made church dogma, and then it was very successfully used to convert the pagan Slavs, who also had a belief in a kind of fairyland. Uh, so I don't know what this thing about dead souls is puzzling to me. It, it, it even with my predilection for the peculiar and the psychedelic, I find it hard to completely embrace the notion that these are ancestors alive in some other dimension. But in some ways, that is the most conservative explanation. After all, if you believe they're extraterrestrials who came from the stars, then you're supposing and hypothesizing all kinds of things. Since they are interested in human beings since they can converse with human beings, since they seem to know our boundaries and limitations, they must be some kind of human being. And then the choices are they are a prenatal form of existence. In other words, souls that never incarnated into a body and are like up there waiting for the stork or something. Uh, or they are some future state of humanity where apparently we no longer have bodies and we've changed ourselves into self-dribbling jeweled basketballs for God knows what reason. Or uh, 
They are post-life forms. They are people who once walked the earth as you and I do, but have gone beyond into this other circumstance. One of the things that is, to me, almost as puzzling as the elfin nature of the DMT encounter is that after you've been in there four or five times, and it takes a while because at first it's just absolute shock and disbelief. I mean, you bring very little out of it. You're just appalled, and that's about all you can say about it. But after a while, I realized uh, that the, the motif of the DMT encounter, and I guess I should describe it briefly, when you burst into the DMT space... You have the impression that you're in a domed space, approximately the size of the length of this room, but round, with a somewhat lower ceiling, indirectly lit, warm, comfortable. And the moment you get your bearings, they're there. In fact, as you break into that space, they cheer. And some of you may know that song by the Pink Floyd from years ago, the gnomes have learned a new way to say hooray. So you break into this space. They scream their greeting. And while you're just trying to get oriented, they come bounding forward, uh, uh, somewhat like dogs, actually. And, and they begin to lick your face and crawl all over you and jump in and out of your body. And, and they say, we love you. We love you. We, you send so many. You come so rarely. Welcome, welcome. And so you're like, you know, trying to take your pulse, trying to make sure you're breathing because you really, you have the impression this is so serious that I may be dead. I may have just simply killed myself <laughs> ten seconds ago, and, and this is what's happening. They use their voices to make objects. They speak a language which you do not hear, but which you see. You not only see it, you feel it. And so they, they use language to cause syntactical architectonic techno structures to condense out of the air and when they sh- and they show you these things they're proud of them they come bounding forward and jump up and down in front of you and say look at this look at this and they're all competing like children to show you this stuff and as you direct your attention into one of these objects you see beyond any power of contradiction that this thing that they're showing you is impossible. They're constantly transforming themselves in the most amazing way. And they're showing you this stuff, and they're saying, do what we're doing. You can do this. Use your voice to make something. And you're like... You know, this is now 30 seconds into this experience. (laughs) Reality has been obliterated and you're just in this place. Well, uh, and and one can do this. And there is a glossolalia. And then these objects condense out of the air. And the objects themselves are somehow alive. You put one down and they, they emit sound and make subsets of their own type. 
And all of this is just, you know, you're just like, my God, what has happened? Uh, the strange thing about DMT is it doesn't affect your mind in the ordinary sense so that you're not ecstatic or freed of anxiety or you're exactly who you were before this started happening with all your neuroses, fears, doubts, and you're saying, you know, is this all right? Am I going to be okay? Does it? How long is it going to last? So forth and so on. But the point I wanted to make that I got started on a few minutes ago is after many of these exposures to this, I have realized, and I think I'm right, that this environment into which you are catapulted bizarre as it is it is someone very strange it's their idea of a reassuring environment for a human being they are as mar- they are so marvelous to you because you've never seen anything like it but on the other hand you've just been born into this world and trying and and this is why i think perhaps it is a bardo perhaps it is an after death uh, I don't know if maternity ward is quite the phrase, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's where you start your existence in this other dimension. But in the same way that a baby lying in a bassinet in a maternity ward could hardly conceive of growing up to drive Ferraris, collect art, and crush the competition, uh, you lying there in this nursery, in this, in this playpen, how can you extrapolate what lies beyond that space? Because clearly the entire space has been prepared for baby. And you're the baby. So you can't figure out, you know, is this the entirety of this universe? Or how far does it extend? And I, I suspect that when you die, this is what you get. And that familiarity with the after-death vehicle that DMT actually is a thanatoptic compound and that this trip is you are peeking over the edge into eternity and, you know, questions you never thought you would have answers to are answered just, you know, is there life after death? You bet. Next question. Uh, (laughs) On that note, uh, let's go to dinner. Thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that somewhat new version of a DMT experience. But please don't forget that not everyone is going to have an experience similar to Terence's. And while I have certainly had my own share of DMT experiences, never, uh, not once, (laughs) did a pack of elves or leprechauns, for that matter, jump on me and lick my face. So, I don't want you to think that while, in very general terms, psychedelic experiences are repeatable, they are mainly repeatable in that they launch you into the psychedelic realm every time. But it seems to me that the actual experience, once you are there, is never the same. Similar in some ways, but never the same. Also, and uh, this is a personal aside to my grandchildren, who hopefully will get to this podcast in about 30 more years or so, But when Terrence mentioned that the Mayan creation date for their long count calendar began on 4-Ahau-8-Kumkua, 
That translates in our system to August 11th, 3114 BC. Now, what is significant about that date for me is what happened exactly 5,056 years later, because that's my own personal creation date, <laughs> as it is for all of our other fellow saloners who were also born on August 11th. And uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with anything, so let's move on. Now, I know that uh, this is a trite observation, but I couldn't help thinking that when Terence said, So when you look at the eschaton, what you see, strangely enough, is your own face. Well, when he said that, without realizing it, I suspect, he was actually speaking about his personal eschaton, which took place less than seven years later. In fact, now that we've listened to so many of his talks and workshops, it's become quite clear to me that, back in the day, as the expression goes, one of the big attractions that he must have had for us was his constant talk about the eschaton. Of course, we had the Millennium's Y2K issue as well as 2012, well into the future at the time. But I'm now wondering if his message would have been so compelling back then if he'd placed the eschaton, uh, say, 500 years into the future. But considering how popular his message still is, uh, even after 2012 has come and gone, well, my guess is that we still would have wanted to hear what he had to say. After all, back then there was no World Wide Web, no Arrowid.org, and outside of Terence, detailed information about drugs was simply not available. In my case, I didn't even know about 2012 or the time wave until well after I'd already come into contact with him. Now, later on in this talk, when he was speaking about crop circles and gave what he called an example of cult thinking, I had to gulp a little because during the mid to late 90s, Terrence himself was well on the way to becoming a cult phenomena. In fact, there's been a lot of speculation that the pressure of avoiding cult status was one of the stresses that eventually brought about his demise. And if you've been here with us in the salon for a while, you've already heard him bemoan the fact that he was trying to avoid a cult while at the same time he had to earn a living on the speaking circuit. It was a real dilemma for him, I've been told, and just so you know, the last thing that I want to do here in the salon is to (laughs) further the cult idea. My purpose is simply to see that uh, some of these ideas uh, stay around for a little while longer. And uh, obviously, in the beginning... I, too, came for the drug information. No secret there. Now, for our younger saloners, when Terrence mentioned what he called that Waco thing, well, he was talking about the incident a couple of months before this talk was given where the Clinton crime family attacked the Branch Davidians uh, for reasons never made clear and burned a number of children to death with tanks and flamethrowers. So, you see, policing civilians with military hardware actually got its start under blowjob Bill Clinton. Keep that in mind should you ever be insane enough to vote for that Clinton woman who keeps threatening to run for president. To quote Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, The horror! The horror! (laughs) But uh, that thought isn't the one that I want to end this podcast with. In fact, it seems that uh, what I have to say right now may become a tradition here in the salon because I just received my year-end announcement from the publisher of the dailypsychedelicvideo.com website. And the man behind the site is my friend Ido, who I got to meet several years ago when he was touring the States. And uh, each day he publishes a link to a new psychedelic video, and then at the end of the year he publishes a best-of link. And uh, I'll be sure to link that in today's program notes, uh, which you know you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. 
Now, before I go, I suppose I would be remiss in not closing this, the last podcast of 2014, with a parting thought of my own or two. And what comes most forcefully to my mind right now is how very much alike all of us humans are, in spite of our differences in language and customs. At this very moment, there are over 500 people who are either downloading or streaming a podcast from this salon. And are you ready for this? Not all of them are Americans. (laughs) Each month, these podcasts are downloaded by people from more than 100 countries. Plus, there is a large .mil contingent as well. Obviously, with a group this widespread, there must be considerable differences in the way we live our daily lives. And yet, there is something here that seems to draw us all together. Something that I can't quite put my finger on. Actually, the best I can do is to put it down to what I call the commonality of psychedelic thinking. And if you're new to the salon, you should be aware that by psychedelic thinking, I'm not talking about being under the influence of a drug or a plant medicine. I'm talking about the state of mind or worldview that people arrive at who are willing to step out of their normal cultural, family, and religious constraints and come to their own conclusions about life. And should you want to know more about what I mean, you can re-listen to my podcast number one, which is a recording of the talk that I gave at the Mind States Conference held near the end of May in 2001, just a few months before our current age of craziness began. The talk is titled Psychedelic Thinking in the Dawn of Homo Cyber, and since I haven't listened to that talk myself for quite a long time now, I probably have changed my mind about some of the things I said back then. The point of the talk, however, isn't to convince you to accept my analysis of the situation, but to encourage you to get out of any mental box you may find yourself in and begin thinking for yourself and questioning any and all authorities. And, uh, by the way, do you remember who it was that first made that phrase, think for yourself and question authority, famous? Well, that's today's pop quiz. As you know, uh, each and every culture thinks that, but for a few small loose ends, they've figured out everything about how the world should work. And, of course, every century or so, historians revisit the past and laugh at how delusional those poor souls were back in the old days. The same will be true 500 years from now, when our descendants look back at how primitive we sometimes have behaved toward one another. One of my dearest friends is Vietnamese. He was an eight-year-old orphan at the time that I was involved in the war in his homeland, and today he is an extremely accomplished artist and computer programmer who, with his wonderful wife, has raised three extremely high-achieving sons. My friend's early life was a horror beyond my ability to describe, and yet he's been able to come to grips with his past and move beyond the pain. What we came to learn during these many years of friendship is that when we strip away the wrappings of culture and religion, that deep down, at our very core, we are essentially the same when it comes to basic human emotions. Being human beings, we are identical in so many more ways than our exterior lives indicate. In the 1990s, my wife and I traveled from Saigon to Hanoi, mostly in the company with my friend and his wife and oldest son. And we stayed with his extended family and friends in their homes along the way. For almost two weeks, we didn't see any other Westerners. Much of our time was spent in the Central Highlands, not far from Laos, where we visited a leper village. Now, 
You wouldn't think that an old white guy from the States could have much in common with those villagers, which is what I thought before that day in the village of Doc Ring, when my eyes looked into the eyes of a young woman who lived there. She had lost several fingers, part of one hand, and most of her nose. She spoke no English, and I spoke no Vietnamese. Yet, through our eyes, we communicated on a level that I've seldom known. As our eyes locked on one another, she gave me one of the most beautiful smiles I've ever seen. I'll never forget her. Here I was, still kind of feeling sorry for myself because I grew up poor in America, and here was this wonderful being who life had treated very shabbily and yet was sending me love and cheer with her smile and her eyes. It is a moment in my life that remains as vivid as if it happened yesterday, and I can never thank her enough for reminding me how that under the skin we are all ultimately the very same. Beyond question, the United States is a deeply racist society, and in my opinion, this racial divide is actually being programmed into our culture very directly and systematically. I'll give you just one example, but looking around, you'll be able to find many other such things as this. I'm talking about those horrible television shows where a mean-spirited judge listens to poor people argue with one another. If you pay attention, you'll notice that about half of all the people on those programs and on other reality TV shows like Cops are black. Now, if a true representation of the population was taken into account, only about one in ten would be black. Yet, the impression that is left with the viewer is that most of these petty quarrels are among black people. What is so insidious about this, from my point of view, is that so many U.S. households simply leave the television on all day. And so the children in the house, even though they aren't paying attention to what's going on on the TV, are being bombarded subliminally with images of black people arguing with one another while a white judge adjudicates their disputes. How do you suppose a four-year-old child processes an imprint like that? And if you don't yet know about the importance of early imprinting, you may want to listen to some of my early Timothy Leary podcasts where he goes into great detail about imprinting. And uh, by the way, Timothy Leary is the answer to today's pop quiz, in case you're wondering. Now, let me tell you about a case of positive imprinting that happened to me. During the last half of the 1940s, in the small town where I grew up, just outside of Chicago, the local garbage collection was done by several independent companies. One of them was owned and operated by a black man named Gene Wheeler, and my mother was his bookkeeper. She worked from her home, and every Friday at the end of the workday, Mr. Wheeler's men would drive their now empty trucks to our house where they picked up their paychecks for the week. Our house was on a corner lot, and Friday afternoons for me were the most exciting time of the week. There'd be a dozen or so big trucks parked in our driveway and on the two streets that our house was on, and the times I remember best was when I was four or five years old, and the truck drivers would help me climb up into the cabs of their trucks and then let me pull the rope that sounded the horn. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a little boy who didn't want to do that. And sometimes one of them would even let me sit on his lap and drive around the block with me thinking that I was doing all the steering. Over time, I got to know most of the men, and so when my mother would come out and sit on the back porch steps with a stack of paychecks in her lap, I'd see who had just pulled up next and would run to their trucks and give them their week's pay. So my imprint as a child 
of young black men is one of happy, laughing, friendly people who liked me and they treated me as if I was all grown up and one of them. Now today, when I'm walking down a city street and see a black man walking my way, unlike many of my contemporaries, my first thought is of those wonderful, smiling men who were my childhood friends. At least, that's how I came to think of them. I was very fortunate to have been imprinted in that way, and hopefully in my own little boy way, by running out to their trucks with their paychecks, some of those men were imprinted by me in a positive way as well. Well, I'm just rambling now, but my point is that perhaps this new year is one in which you should seek out someone who has been raised in a different culture and is of a different race. Then get to know them like you would if you were stranded on a desert island with them. Talk about substantive things, not just small talk. And if you do, my guess is that you're going to realize what a deep common humanity we share. And it's time that we begin acting like the brothers and sisters we really are. We're all in this together, you know. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>